Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by the UCLA Extension Writers Program, the largest open enrollment creative writing and screenwriting program in the nation. At UCLA Extension, you can take courses in novel writing, short fiction, memoir, personal essay, poetry, playwriting, writing for the youth market, publishing, you name it. And you can also take screenwriting courses, both feature film and television. The various classes are taught by top-level instructors who have actually walked the walk, publishing books and producing films and television shows. The program features almost 500 courses annually, both online and on-site, at beginner, intermediate, and advanced levels, with evening, weekend, and daytime options as well. The program also features certificate programs in feature film, television writing, fiction, and creative nonfiction, manuscript and script consultations, writing competitions, free events, nine-month master classes, mentorships, scholarships, and friendly and knowledgeable advisors. For more information, call 310-825-9415. That's 310-825-9415, or visit them on the web at uclaextension.edu slash writers, or check them out on Facebook and the Twitter. This is a writer's program. You can learn to write better. Go and do it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Right. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. This is part of your weekly media intake. This is healthier than reality television and might even be healthier than reality. My guest today is Matt Bell. He's the author of several books. He's written a collection of fiction called How They Were Found. He's written three chapbooks. And now he has written a novella. It's called Cataclysm Baby. It is available from Mud Luscious Press. Uh, he also works as an editor at Dezank Books, where he runs the popular literary magazine called The Collagist. So uh, he's a very active guy in the indie publishing community. He does a lot of good things for a lot of writers. And he's also a very gifted young author himself. Uh, Matt and I are going to be talking at length in just a moment, and you don't want to miss it. Uh, and here's something sort of strange. I was just out at dinner, uh, an early dinner, just moments ago. And uh, I was with my daughter and a friend of mine, uh, my old roommate, actually, from years ago. And uh, I haven't seen her in a while. 
So we made plans to have dinner together and I brought my kid along and I was on my own essentially as a father and I was trying to manage the situation effectively. And, uh, I was a little bit conscious of the fact that I was on my own and I wanted to perform well, uh, in my role as the patriarch. So my daughter at this point, she's almost 20 months old. And so she's walking and she's talking a little bit and, uh, she has pigtails and she's very cute. And so I loaded her into the car. Uh, I've got that part of it down. Uh, and so I've got her buckled up in her car seat and I drive over to this restaurant and, uh, we're running a little bit late and I'm on the phone in the car, uh, on a business call as I'm driving. And, uh, and yes, it was a hands-free, uh, phone call. You know, my car has Bluetooth. So I was being responsible and I was wearing my seatbelt and, uh, I find a metered parking spot on the side of the street and I park the car and I'm talking for a little bit on the phone, like wrapping things up. And then finally I finish the call. And at this point we're like 15 minutes late. So I'm feeling bad. And uh, my friend is texting me like, where are you? And so I grab my daughter, or, you know, I unload my daughter. Uh, I take her by the hand and I start to run, uh, at kind of a slow trot. Um, I'm basically jogging. And so, uh, we're moving down the sidewalk and, uh, before too long, I realize <laughs> that my daughter can't really run that fast because she's only 20 months old, uh, and she's trying to keep up with me. So I pick her up and I run with her carrying her and, uh, we finally make it to the restaurant and we meet my friend and all is well. And we go inside and we sit down and it's a very enjoyable meal. So, uh, you know, behavior wise, there are no major meltdowns at the table. Uh, my daughter was a delight and, uh, I was very proud of her. I had some stickers on hand, uh, that my wife had given me, uh, which is a good thing. And, and, you know, in case you don't know, uh, stickers tend to serve as good distractions, uh, for little kids, like little animal stickers. So if your child starts getting fussy, uh, you just start putting stickers on their face and, uh, that's, <laughs> that's what I do anyway. And then you put some on your face and then suddenly it's a game and your kid will peel the stickers off of their face and put them on their hands and their arms and on other people and so on. So, uh, the point of all this, and I don't mean to bore you with uh, like, you know, mundane domestic anecdotes. Uh, the point is that the dinner lasted about an hour and a half, uh, and then it was over with, and I was saying goodbye to my friend and uh, I picked my daughter up and, uh, we leave and I walk back up the block to my vehicle, which is like two blocks away. And, uh, up ahead, as I'm on the approach, I see that the headlights are on, which, uh, which is strange because they're supposed to turn off automatically, or at least that's how I understood it. So then I get closer, uh, to the car and I hear the engine running <laughs> and I'm like, wow, that's unbelievably odd because, uh, I'm not in the car, nor did I turn it on. And so apparently I was in such a hurry on my way to the restaurant that I left the keys in the car and left the car running for about 90 minutes on the side of a very busy street, uh, in the middle of Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, thankfully nothing happened. Like, thankfully no one absconded with my vehicle and all's well, uh, that ends well. And as I was kidding, you know, I was joking around with my friend earlier, at least I didn't leave my, my daughter in the car, uh, because that would have been egregious and, uh, possibly unforgivable. 
So what else? Uh, I had a good time at the Los Angeles uh, Times Festival of Books last weekend. We had a very good show on the Thursday night preceding the festival. And uh, I'm talking about the Nervous Breakdown Literary Experience. Uh, we had a very good turnout. Uh, Molly Malone's uh, was a great venue. They played host. And uh, the performances were enjoyable. Uh, Gina Frangello, Claire Bidwell-Smith, Ben Laurie, Joshua Moore, uh, Steve Aby. Uh, they all got up there and read from their work. And then Rich Ferguson... Uh, the spoken word poet, he got up there accompanied by a couple of outstanding drummers who go by the acronym BOSS, like B-O-S-S, and they were outstanding. Uh, And then there was music by John Elliott and the Hereafter, uh, and they were terrific. And uh, I I actually got up there and read a little bit myself uh, from my novel In Progress. So uh, with that in mind, I figured I'd share a brief excerpt from my performance. So here goes. Across from me, Along the far wall was a large aquarium, inside of which sat a massive coiled python. So, uh, yeah, that's one excerpt, and then uh, I'll give you another uh, quick excerpt. Here's the second one. I then started thinking about snakes and, and about pythons in particular and how they squeeze their prey. I thought about a python I had once seen on the Internet and how it was big enough to eat a full-grown man and how it had eaten a full-grown man. <laughs> okay, so there you have it, folks. A brief teaser from the novel in progress. Uh, if this godforsaken thing uh, ever gets finished and does find its way into print, you can certainly read the rest of it. Uh, and you know, uh, I hope it happens. I'm working. You know, I'm working diligently on that task. I can assure you. Hey, everybody! If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature. I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So uh, enough about me. Uh, What do you say we get on with the program? This here is Matt Bell. He lives in Michigan. He has a beard. Uh, At least I think he has a beard. He has a beard in his author photo. And uh, he is the author of a novella called Cataclysm Baby. Yeah, I took a teaching job at Northern Michigan University, which is in the Upper Peninsula at Marquette. Um, so, uh, so we'll be leaving in like August. Uh, my wife is a grad student here at Michigan. Uh, she's dissertating in August. We'll leave after she's done. She is dissertating. That's a verb. I know, right? Yeah, yeah. I think it's a very impressive verb. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. If you're if you're if you're, if, if you're dissertating, you're doing important things. Right, right. I'm not actually sure if that's like the final thing of the whole process or what exactly is dissertating, but she's definitely doing it, oh. whatever it is. And yeah. in what? In like, is that, uh, did I miss that? Yeah, in uh, medicinal chemistry. 
Holy cow. So she does, uh, <laughs> does um, pharmaceutical research. All right. So like if you basically, uh, there's a lot of brain power in your household and, uh, should you reproduce? Have you, do you guys have children? No, we don't. Okay. Well, that's interesting. I assume you're thinking about it. And the only reason I say that is because of this book, like it's got to at least be on your mind. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, we've at least had those, those talks, right. I, you know, obviously we're, we've been married for it'll be eight years this year. We're both in our early thirties. So, you know, it's, it's the time where at least you get asked about it constantly, whether you want to talk about it or not. So no, it's it's weird because like I've got one kid, and like you know, you get to a certain time in your life, and like I think some people you uh, want to have children, other people aren't so sure. Some people they don't right. want, they do not want to have kids, and that's fine too. Um, but what I find that is interesting, and I think there's some truth to, is that if you do, uh, if you are one of those people uh, whose destiny it is to have a kid or multiple children, I feel like those kids live somehow in your subconscious like long before they're born and maybe like your whole life or something like there's something to that where like you know you don't know explicitly you, i don't think you sat down explicitly and and you can obviously speak to this better than i do uh you know better than i would but uh, i don't think you sat down to write cataclysm baby and, and thought to yourself like this is about me wanting to be a dad uh, or maybe you did but like no no absolutely maybe maybe like subconsciously it's like working on you somehow do you feel like there's any truth to that you know, I don't know. I think, um, you know, right now my, my wife and I have been pretty adamant about about not wanting to have children. Um, but obviously I wrote this whole book about, like, fatherhood and um, <laughs> raising children. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm not an idea guy. I don't tend to start from, like, knowing what I'm going to do when I sit down to write something. So obviously a lot of that subconscious stuff is working. Um, I'm from a big family. Uh, you know, I don't know how much of it's, it's that. But, yeah, it's, it's that time of life, I think, you know, where everyone I know is having kids or choosing not to have kids or at least talking about defending whatever side of the decision that came down on, you know. Right. People who have kids is the greatest thing ever. The people who don't have kids would never have kids, you know. Right, um, right. <laughs> <laughs> or people like people who, you know, this is the thing, and uh, ugh, there's no way to speak about it too definitively, but, like, for people who say, like, I don't like children, it's like, yeah, yeah, neither do I. But then when it's your own, you know, like it's right. a totally different story. <laughs> it's like, oh, I, you know, I, that makes sense to me. I mean, I like kids. I actually really love kids. Um, yeah, me too. You know, it's just something that, yeah. Your kid is very young right now, right? Like, yeah, like 18, less than two years. Is that right? Yeah, less like 18 months. So, yeah. Uh, we're in the, you know, we're, it, it's, it's all fun. I mean, honestly, it, it really is. Uh, well, it's not all fun, but you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> Yeah, the sum total of it is so great and uh, better than I expected, and I was expecting it to be fun. So that's as good as you can say. Yeah, I think that there's always this like uh, people who've been a parent for like a year or two have this like when they say that they get this like stunned look on their face, like they're so surprised it turned out so well, you know? Yeah, and just like you know, it's like everything about parenthood, and I might have even talked about this before on this show is like everything people talk about is true. You know, it's like really right. hard. It's really hard, but it's the best thing you'll ever do. You never sleep, but somehow you just do it. You know, like all those things sort of uh, start to seem uh, trite, but they're all true. But the part of it that surprised me, or one of the things that surprised me is like the narcotic effect of it. Like children are like, I mean, like when I look at my daughter and she smiles, it's like I just did a line of cocaine or something. You know what I'm saying? It's like, <laughs> It's like, and I'm not even kidding. Like internally, like it's just you, and, and it works every time. You know what I'm saying? It's not mm -hmm. like it's not like there's a, 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 a you know a system of diminishing returns. It's like every time she laughs or smiles or like runs up to me and says "Daddy," it's like I'm right. on some sort of drug. It's pretty cool. 
would be so sad if there were diminishing returns. Like by the time they were twenty, like it didn't do anything to you, you know? <laughs> right. I think it's fun. <laughs> yeah, there there better not be. There's something hardwired into our biology, or you would like to think yeah. that there is, you know. Uh, but for me, there definitely is, and I don't know, man. It's been a good thing for me. I'm I'm glad I did it. That's for sure. We're at the. Uh... Uh, my, you know, I'm the oldest in my family, um, but I'm oldest of five, and none of my brothers and sisters uh, have kids yet. Uh, and then my cousins don't have a lot; they're just starting to like have kids. So we go to like Thanksgiving or something. You see an occasional baby. Um, so I'm not around little kids a lot. And so whenever I am, like I, I get some of that. Like I forget that like a two year old is amazing. We hang out with a two year old and read a book or play. It's like it's amazing. Yeah. And I just don't do it very much. So I know exactly what you mean, even with other people's kids. Or it's like, wow, I can really see why this is fun, you know? Yeah, well, they're, um, they're just like, they're so wide open. You know, they're like, you read a book to, uh, and like, what's crazy is that like my daughter's verbal capacity isn't really that highly developed. I mean, it, it's, it, you know, she's doing fine, but it's just like, she's not conversant yet. You know, she just says, sure. she says words. But what's so strange is that you read a book to her and she understands everything you're saying, you know, like, so their, their comprehension is ahead of their actual conversational abilities. So it's just strange that their little brains are working so fast and so efficiently when it comes to language. Like that's sort of mind blowing. Yeah. I, uh, I re- was visiting some friends in, in Kentucky last week and I hung out with their son. I think he's about two and was reading to him and he, uh, it was obviously a book or he went and picked the book. I was a book he'd read before. And, you know, I just can't read these two. But, like, he knew all the words on the page, and from, like, other people pointing at him when they talked, he could, like, he was pointing at him, but he wasn't really reading, right? He's just, like, he knows that's where, like, the speech goes. Right. And it was really neat to see where it's, like, it could be very easy to believe he was reading it. You know what I mean? Sure. Because he had had this experience internalized in this language and with this picture, and it was, I mean, it's very neat to see and sort of... um I don't know how much he needed me, you know? <laughs> yeah, right? You, you, think you're so, you think you're so essential, you know, you're sharing this, like, right, special right. You're basically just, like, the, the guy who's, like, you're, like, his entertainment, you know? Right, like, the book is heavy, so, like, I'm there to help, you know? <laughs> but <laughs> Just hold this and talk, you know, right. et cetera. So, um, so, now, where are you from originally? Are you from Michigan, like, uh, born and raised and have lived there all your life, or did you come there from someplace else? I'm from Michigan. Um, I grew up uh, in in a town called Hemlock, which is a very small town up there, Saginaw. Um, so I grew up kind of on the country, but like 15 minutes from like two smallest like industrial cities. Um, and I lived there, uh, either there in Saginaw until we moved to Ann Arbor like five years ago. So always in Michigan. Um, I thought when I was younger I would I would leave sooner, um, and now I'm just moving around Michigan. Um, but yeah, I mean, I love Michigan. Like it's been really great. We, you know, we have one of those families where everybody's really close and lives like 10 minutes from each other. Um, I think my, not now because we're moved away, but when we lived up, up near Saginaw, I think my dad has like 50 cousins that all live within 15 minutes of him, you know? Um, so, you know, getting even like two or three or four hours away is a big thing in my family. Wow. That's nice though. I mean, don't, and you, and you like it? I mean, do you ever feel suffocated? Oh yeah, yeah. No, that's great. I mean, I think, um, like we always, we were always with like cousins or or you know family that we were growing up. Even though we kind of lived um, out in the middle of nowhere, but I mean, so did they. You know, like everybody's around, uh, and it was really great. Like I don't have any complaints. My dad's family is the one that's that's close. My mom's family lives in the Upper Peninsula, um, and they're a really close knit family. Everybody's really nice. Everybody helps each other out. You know, those like summer years where we were like roofing somebody else's house in the family like every month for five years. You know. Um, you know, it's really, it's nice. It's a community inside the community kind of thing. No, that's great. And I find that like, cause I, I, uh, 
spent half of my childhood in Wisconsin, and I've always had like really fond memories of it. And uh, my wife uh, is from Minnesota originally, so um, I've always had this thing in my head where I feel like the I call it the Great White North, but like it's like Minnesota, right. Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan. I feel like those states are sort of underrated. I feel like people from up in those places tend to be good people. But I think I guess so I'm, too. I'm, I'm biased, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like they're uh, there's there's such big states and there's so much in them and they're so different, you know. That I think that you can you can live in Detroit and live in a completely different Michigan than the you know kind of places that my wife and I grew up in. Um, she grew up in a small town as well, and you know I remember having friends from college, you know, and who had lived in Detroit and like never seen corn growing, you know, which is all people think the Midwest is, you know. So I think there's a lot of different experiences you can have here, but like that's one of the things that's kind of cool about the the state and the area. Yeah, well, and just like culturally though, and like the people and whatever their origins are, like I guess it's like Germanic and Scandinavian, and I mean I don't know. Sure. That, that's what's in Michigan too, right? It's all that. Yeah, a lot of Irish people, a lot of Finnish people, German, English, you know, a lot yeah. of French names, but I don't think tons of people that are French descended. I think the French just got here and named everything, you know, but they didn't come in numbers. Yeah. Well, there just seems to be like a kind of a live and let live uh, tendency to the people in Wisconsin that I remember growing up. Whereas, uh, you know, I spent the other half of my childhood in Indiana, which had a lot of great people as well. But there was also something distinctly sort of Southern uh, about Indiana, which is sort of odd considering its geography. And it was just, you know, it's not all bad or anything like that, but it was just different. And there was something about the you know, at least how I re- recall Wisconsin that I really liked, you know? Yeah, I think, I think, I think right about Indiana, I feel, uh, even Ohio is that way too, where it's just, you know, you can be hours south of Michigan and it's a distinctly different feel as you go south through Ohio, that it's really bridging that like Midwest Southern place. And I imagine Indiana does a lot of the same. Well now, and what about like a kinship with Canada? Like when you live in Michigan, do you feel any kinship with Canada that like maybe other parts of the country don't, or is that... Uh, not true. Yeah, I don't know. I never. I mean, I never think of it that way. But we probably went to Canada a lot more than than other people do. You know, because it is close. I mean, um, we used to go camping in Canada and backpacking there when we were kids. And um, certainly when I was like nineteen or twenty, you know, you'd go to Canada with friends for the weekend because it was legal to drink there. Um, and so I, I remember a lot of that kind of stuff. But I don't know that I, I'm not sure that I think about Canada more than other places. What is the normal proportion of thinking about Canada? Yeah, how many hours a week do you spend thinking about Canada? That's what we need to know. <laughs> I'll try to quantify that and get back to you and put it in the show notes. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> um, so you said you're the oldest of five. Yes. And, uh, you know, so obviously, like, there's something, you know, I, I feel like the old, you know, the oldest is always sort of expected to lead the way in some regard. Um, do you feel like, you know, like what, 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 what was your experience that way? You know, in terms of being the oldest and having four younger siblings, like how did you relate to them? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's part, I mean, there's definitely some truth to that. Um, I'm, the, I'm two years older than my closest sibling and I have a sister who's six years younger than me and a twin brother and sister who are 10 years younger. So, um, so kind of a big spread, but my, my brother is two years younger than me. Uh, and I just spent like, kind of our entire childhoods together. I, I just remember sort of always being together. Um, you know, we'd play outside in the woods and, and make up stories and stuff. and something we were always doing together and sort of like carrying on these, these same things. Um, you know, we lived out in the country and there weren't other kids like right by us. So I think we just spent like an inordinate amount of time together. I just had lunch with them today and I was, we were kind of catching up. I was thinking like, man, I haven't talked to them and like, like face to face in a while now. 
I mean, we lived really close to each other, but when we were kids, we were like always, always together. Yeah. Um, and I think that like those units like exist like throughout my family. Like him and my younger brother were together a lot. Um, as I got older, uh, my two sisters spent a lot of time together and still do. Uh, so I think we all had that sort of like some these different pairings in the family where we're all maybe extra close, although it's a very, very close family. Um, we're really lucky that way. I think that, uh, despite being a guy who just wrote a book full of like, you know, messed up families, um, but I had a really great one, you know, I mean, like any family, we had our stuff, but really lucky in some ways. And I think that, uh, really encouraged to sort of be imaginative and we spent a lot of time outside by ourselves or just running around. Well, I was just um, going to say, I was going to say, because, you know, that, that was one of the things and like, you know, you can never say with too much certainty, but like when I look back on my childhood and I think about, uh, my tendency towards creative things. And I think about how, uh, bleak the winters can be, uh, at least to some extent, yeah, almost more mm-hmm. so in Indiana than in, uh, Wisconsin or maybe Michigan. Cause at least in Wisconsin and Michigan, you can like go ice skating and play hockey on the creeks. Right. And, you know, like Indiana, it's just like fro- you know, freezing rain and like a brown cornfield. Um, but, yeah, a little more tundra. Yeah. Yeah. So like there, you were just kind of in this middle ground where it wasn't nice enough to be outside. And then there was nothing really that you could do in the inclement weather. But I think that when you grow up in a place, uh, you know, where you're outside a lot or you're in a small town and you don't have access to, you know, some big city or some big ski resort or whatever the case may be, you're sort of forced to be imaginative and to create your own fun. And like, maybe that feeds into becoming a storyteller. Do you think that there's any truth to that for you? Oh yeah. And I think absolutely. I mean, I, I, and ways, I think that's just like what it was, right? Like we were, we're both kids who, we read a lot and we, we go outside and, you know, we'd make up, you know, whatever kind of stories we're stealing from like Lord of the Rings or something. Right. And like enacting them in our woods. Um, and I remember like at the time it always feeling like novel and feeling really sort of like we were doing this new thing all the time. But when I look back on it, I feel like we, we played out like the same stories over and over and over again. Like it was always sort of like a variation on like the same theme. Right. Right. And we just like for years would like be out in the woods telling each other the same story we were participating in. Um, in a way that's, that seems really, and I think that's just how kids are in some ways, right? Like you watch the same movie over and over, well, it doesn't get boring. Yeah. Kids don't need novelty in the way that adults do. Well, but it's also, um, it's like folklore, you know, it's like child. Yeah, yeah, like, absolutely. You know, absolutely. Like in, inventing your own folk tales. And like, I remember as a kid, when you say watching the same movie over and over again, like there were, there were obviously several, but like, there's one memory that I have that, uh, it's sort of crazy when I think about it, but I remember watching the movie Meatballs because I was like, right. I was so into Bill Murray as a kid, and uh, I remember watching that movie when I was probably in elementary school. I don't even know how old I was, but literally sitting there with our old VCR and watching that movie on repeat like ten consecutive times in a day, <laughs> you know, like something, something, right. something just absurd, and you know, and there was, you know, it was it was a pleasant experience every time, you know. Yeah, I think that there's uh I mean I think there's something to that that's really um really fantastic. I think we sort of lose as we get older, where we like trust those repetitions less or we feel weird. Like you would feel weird if you watched meatballs ten times in a row now. <laughs> yes. Like that would be your your wife would be mad at you, your kid would be like squalling, you'd just be you'd be really upset. Like, why am I doing this? But like as a kid that's a really normal and I think even healthy behavior. I don't think it's there's anything weird about it. Um well, and the but thing, we get really distrustful of that. Yeah, and the thing that's, I mean, because, okay, because I, I can tie this back into writing, and I'll do it in just a second, but, like, you know, uh, one of the things about it that distinguishes it from a repetition that might occur now in my adult life is that in my adult life, I might be doing it to try to, like, disassemble it or figure out how it works right. so that I could apply it to my own work. 
But back then I was doing it because I liked it <laughs> because it right. was fun, you know, and I just wanted to, and there was no agenda and there was no, uh, at least no conscious deconstruction going on. And so, you know, to kind of weave this somehow back into writing, uh, cause I've done this, you know, like when you find a book, uh, that really like gets its hooks into you, like you read some novel that just absolutely blows your mind. And I think every writer has, um, mm -hmm. several, you know, there are these books that for whatever reason, like, you know, a, they're really good. B, you happen to pick them up and read them at the perfect time in your life when they have this sort of massive effect on you. Uh, and then from that point forward, the book sort of, uh, occupies like a hallowed place on your shelf or, uh, in my case, they become almost like desk references. I just keep them near me, oh, yeah. you know, when I'm, when I'm writing. And so, uh, there are novels that I've read, uh, over and over and over again. And I'm curious to know if you have books like that, that you've read repeatedly because a, you like them so much and B you're, you know, you're interested in, in seeing how they, how they fit together and how they work. Yeah, I think the, the book I probably read the most, um, at least in sort of my adult life, is is Dennis Johnson's uh, Jesus' Son, which I read, you know, at least once a year. And since I since I first read it, maybe ten or eleven years ago, um, and it's another one that's sort of like always floating around. I own like four copies of it because I you know borrow them and lose them, and I just like, have to have one all the time. So like you know, uh, I keep getting more of them. Uh, I feel like that's a book I've, I've gone back to just over and over and over. Um, Brian Evanson's The Open Curtain is often near near the desk around. Uh, there's a book by Robert Lopez, uh, Can Be Belongo Mean River, that I, I've, it's probably maybe the novel from the last couple of years I've read the most. Um, but yeah, I think that I'm, I'm very much that way. I get sort of touchstones and I'm hard to let go. Um, Blood Meridian and Outer Dark by Cormac McCarthy is sort of always near the desk. Um, Endgame by Beckett. You know, there's these handful of things that sort of, um, that are, are sort of permanently there once they're there, you know, and I think other things come and go, but those ones have been pretty constant over yeah. the last, you know, little bit yeah well no and it's it's interesting because i think like maybe on the surface level you can you can point to those books uh like whatever you know list you happen to have and you can point to them and, and sort of understand on the surface why they you know they meant so much or why you were so affected by them but like the reasons uh they go deep and if i think about a book that i really like like for like that serves a similar purpose like for instance journey to the end of the night um mm -hmm. the celine novel like i i've read that book God knows how many times. And like, I just think it's like a novel that has everything in it. That's always how I've characterized it. Right. Right. Uh, and you know, I understand certain on a certain level why it affected me so much, but I think some of it's also sort of mysterious. And like, maybe that's why I keep rereading. It's like, why is this working on me so much? Like, you know, what is wrong with me? You know? <laughs> like, yeah. I feel like, you know, like they get, um, I mean, I don't know what your experience is, but I feel like my experiences, like the books that I, that I ended up loving that much, like like Jesus' Son, for instance, which again, like I've just read dozens of times, and in, and in part, way more. Um, and I feel like I almost can't read it anymore. It's like a like a music album I really love, where you put it on and then it's over, and you didn't hear any of it. Right. But like you heard it, it was great. You feel better because you listened to it, but you didn't you didn't sing along, you didn't think about it. It just sort of happens. And I feel like some of those books have gone that way, where it's like like they're so ingrained on me that I can't notice them when I'm reading them. If that's just like the way I feel now. Well, yeah. Um, and you like, you yeah, almost, you almost, yeah. <laughs> you, it's like, you know, every word. I mean, truly like, right. not that you could recite it verbatim from memory or maybe, you know, maybe you could, but like could, no. for me, it's like, you know, just reading it on the page. Like, you know, exactly what word is going to come next. It's almost like you can speak it to yourself as you read it with like some degree of anticipation. It's, it's, you know, you get to that level once you've spent enough time with a book. 
Uh, and there still, I think, are these like surprises left, right? Like, I mean, I'm sure there's parts of the novel that you forget until you read them every time. And you're like, oh, this part, you know, it's like, this isn't the thing I think of first when I'm reading the book. But when I get to it, I'm always like, yeah, that too, you know? Right. Um, and so, and there's those parts that sort of continue to surprise that aren't sticking in the same way, but are still like doing a lot of effect on you. Or they become the new thing that's important for this, you know, 10th reading or 20th reading. Well, um, do you find that like yeah. as you get older and as like time passes by that like uh, any of the book's power, aside from the fact that like it's the 50th time you've read it, but do you find right. that, like as you kind of evolve in your own life and your sensibilities naturally change and, you know, everything about you changes, do you find yourself rereading a book that you once, um, you know, was once in like your personal, um, you know, constellation of great books that no longer has the same impact on you? Uh, do you know what I'm saying? Like, Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think that's the more common case, right? I mean, most books don't. I, I mean, almost every book will hold up through one reading. I think almost every book is worth reading once, you know. Um, very few books are worth reading twice. And a lot of books that I even love the first or second time just diminish over time or or, or you start to see their flaws more. Um, I feel like some of the books I loved best when I was, like, you know, 10 years ago, i lost some of their power because they've become less mysterious because other people have imitated them. Um like, for example, I guess, like, I I was a huge, huge George Saunders fan, you know, and I, and I think I still am. But that particular kind of story became so imitated that, like, they've lost some of their, their power for me when I go back to them. Like, I'm seeing something that not very many people do that well, but a lot of people try to do. Or I think you can go back to some of these other books and it's just there's less stuff like them or less stuff that I know like them. Right. Um, does that make sense? Like, I feel like it does. It's, not, it's not Saunders' fault the book has diminished for me. But I think it's that so many people were, tried to do what he did that maybe has caused it. Yeah, no, and it's like, it, you know what it makes me think of, which is semi, like semi-related. And I'm trying to figure this out in myself, like, you know, why I'm like this. But like whenever there's something in the arts, uh, whether it's a movie or a band or a book or anything, and uh, like too many people start doing it or too many people start like going crazy about it on Twitter or whatever, uh, I, I instinctively recoil. And I find, right. I find myself thinking like, ugh, you know, like I just, it, it somehow it, it diminishes my enjoyment of it, it, like, or my ability to enjoy it. Like I like to find, like as a reader, I sort of like to read on my own little weird path. Like it's so much more uh, pleasurable for me. And I don't like the feeling of being like, oh my God, so this is the book of the moment. I've got to read this so that I can keep up right. with, with who, you know what I'm saying? It just seems silly to me. Right. <laughs> But I feel like there's a lot of that weird, you know, I can feel that pressure and that weird sort of thing happening. And I think, you know, maybe for some people it's not weird at all. Maybe some people just like to read what's new and is being celebrated. But, like, I think part of me is just, like, you know, inherently against the grain or whatever or bullheaded about it. And then part of me maybe is suspicious of why certain things are suddenly being celebrated and how that happens sure. and what the, you know, what the mechanics of it are. But I just, I find it to be such a personal process. And so I feel like I have sort of an odd reading taste compared to uh, a lot of people, you know, and it just sort of varies. You think some of it is just people like all those other voices, just like muddying your reaction. Yeah. Like, it's just, it just, it, it, yeah, exactly. Like it's just such a personal right. experience for me. And I, um, I don't know. Like I just, I, there's something quiet about it. Like when I find a book, mm -hmm. when I find a book, it's like, it's a secret, you know, <laughs> like, like, Absolutely. I'm, like I'm the only person who ever found this book and I'm reading it and I'm the only person in the world who's reading it right now, which might be 
Uh, I hope that's not narcissistic, but you, you know what I'm saying? It's like that. It's a joyful kind of thing where you're like, okay, this is really affecting me. And like, uh, I think when there's all this chatter about it, or I feel like I'm part of some, um, you know, cattle herd or whatever, it diminishes it for me somehow. Do you, um, did you, I, I don't know what your sort of background is as far as like when you started like reading seriously and writing and that. And, um, I know for me, like I grew up sort of in an area where, like when I when I was reading, you know, Dennis Johnson for the first time, like I didn't know anybody who had read Dennis Johnson. Like none of my professors had, you know, like this small college, and none of my friends had. And so, like I, you know, like it was, even though the blurbs on the book were from like the New York Times, and I was aware that other people were reading it, I still got to have it for myself for years. You know, the only people who were talking about it were people I gave it to. Right. Um, and and I had all these experiences like that with music and with with you know books and movies. Um, where because I was in sort of an isolated area, I was getting to react by myself to the things I was taking in instead of, um, you know, now, like, uh, you know, some, you know, a new Dennis Johnson book comes out and there, there's noise about it everywhere, right? Right. Like I, I, it's not my own experience with somebody like that. But you can still have it if you're reading indie books or you're reading old books or, you're, you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, I think that was really important to get to react to the books that, that touched me really deeply slowly and on my own pace, and when I was ready to learn more about him by reading it again. Right. There was no one to talk to. Right, and there's just and the word that you said that kind of seems most operable to me is noise. Like, it's, yeah. just, it's hard to read when there's a lot of noise, you know, unless it's like white noise or, you know, you're in a crowded cafe and somehow you can zone out. But that makes sense to me, and I feel like that's kind of the effect that all that chatter has to me is that it feels like noise, and it, it, it's hard to read when there's lots of noise. So, you know. I went to... Uh, when- been to you know MoMA in New York a couple of times, and uh, and I first went like five or six years ago um, with my wife and another couple we were traveling with. Um, and you know when you have four people trying to do something like there's all like you're, it's partly about the group dynamic and not about what you're doing, right? Um, and we had people really liked, but people's interest levels were very varied, and it was sort of like this we're rushing through the museum, um, and you know you so you saw some stuff but you didn't have a full experience. Um, I went back a couple of years later with my wife and we went very slow and we sort of like, when we chatted about things, we looked at everything together. Right. Um, and then to go again, like last fall and to go by myself and just take as long as I wanted at every painting or just look at the stuff I wanted to, to go in a room and just be like, Nope, I don't want to look at any of that. Um, to go back and look at things and that difference between sort of like the group experience of art and the, you know, paired experience of art and then like the alone experience of art, you know, some of those paintings are the same paintings every time. Um, but it's very, very different standing in a group looking at them from standing looking by yourself. And I imagine that's the same thing that's happening to us with these books. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, I think of travel too. You know, like I, people are always like, "How do you travel solo?" Like, I love to travel. Oh. I loved it when I, when I was a kid. Like, there's nothing better than traveling solo because then you're in a group and everyone's got a different agenda, and some people want to eat, and some people want to walk, and some, you know, it's like that to me seems uh, chaotic. But when you're solo, you're just. Uh, I don't know. There's a level of, like you say, quiet observation that you're allowed that uh, suits me, you know, as a or suits the writerly part of me, anyways. My uh, my wife was always getting mad at me for watching movies that she wants to see too. Well, watch it by myself first, and then watch it with her. Um, and she'll get mad at me because I've already experienced it, right? Like it's not we're not having this thing together. But sometimes it is that I want to have it like by myself, like you know, I used selfish to, or not, but it is, you know. Yeah, no. When I was in high school, uh, I was like, I used to go to a movie by myself every Sunday. And, uh, oh, that's awesome! Yeah, and Good like, for my, you. my parents were like, "What are you doing?" You know, 
like, <laughs> I just like it. You know, I just, there's nothing better to me than going to a movie like that. And I don't know what it is. I, you know, I think it's just wanting to have, uh, and as unfiltered of an experience of it as possible or something. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would never have been able to articulate it, it as that when I first started doing that, when I first started realizing you could eat by yourself in restaurants, you could go to the bar by yourself for an hour, you know? Right. Um, and it's obviously completely different to go and sit at the bar by yourself than to sit there with any other person. Um, and, and I, and I, I don't think I knew that's why I was doing it, you know, but I think that, that looking back, I'm really grateful for all these things that I, um, I, I did, but of course, obviously I'm really grateful for the things I've done with my wife and with other people. Cause those are great too. Sure. Yeah. But I think a lot of people never do this stuff by themselves or never read a book that's not in a book club or not in a class or not, you know, you know, or, or not like you know, being raved about in the New York times or, you know, right. not getting like lots of buzz or whatever the case may be, you know? And, uh, yeah. You know, Listen not, to an album that no one's ever heard of, you know? Yeah. Or, or, or hasn't yeah. been like, you know, or, or is old or hasn't been talked about in a while or exists on the periphery mm-hmm. or whatever the case may be. But, um, yeah, it's, I'm similar. So, when did you, I mean, you say you read Dennis Johnson in high school. Is that when you started to get turned on and decide that you wanted to pursue this or was it earlier? Than um, probably a little later, more like, uh, like 20 or 21. Um, I was, uh, I probably read Johnson when I was 21. So I think and I'm 31 now, be 32 in a couple of months. So a little over 10 years ago. Um, and that's about the time that I started, started like writing seriously. I'd written when I was younger and stuff. Um, but I, I didn't in high school and I didn't want to start out college. Uh, and then I had a year or two of write, uh, thinking I was going to, I don't know, write poetry, which is not the case. I'm a terrible poet. Did you, um, did you ever have like an all lowercase phase where you wrote poetry all lowercase? I don't think so. I think I might've skipped that. I think it was it, as much as I'm willing to like, you know, take on sort of an effect. I think I was aware that one was maybe more than I, <laughs> I wanted. That I didn't one. know anything about poetry. So I was mostly writing like, song lyrics and like and i would read like books of poetry by like songwriters right i would read like jim morrison's book of poetry or something sure um an american yeah prayer. i wasn't was getting it? anywhere good with it <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 no i think I, it's, it's called american an american prayer right that was his book. yeah oh yeah 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 so i would just you know i don't know get high and write like bad poetry with uh you know like jim morrison's not <laughs> 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 a super strong phase you know i mean uh you know i have a lot of things to embarrass so i think that's a particularly particularly sad one. Oh, I so, just, I remember like, but everybody I, goes through that. Oh, sure. I, I like, I remember, and I still love the Oliver Stone movie, the doors, uh, like on the level of mm-hmm. like, it's like, I don't know. There's something sort of great about it and campy about it. And, and it sort of plays like a comedy for me in some parts. Um, but the Van Morrison performance, like I remember watching that movie multiple times in college and just, you know, uh, I don't know. For some reason it always struck me as being a really funny movie. I mean, that's actually what I used to watch over and over when I was like 18 or 19. You know, yeah. I just deeply loved that. My roommate and I would watch it like once a week. It was just like always on in our house. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like a- we, were, we were like the least cool guys, too. I mean, I don't like we were just really obsessed with like, I don't know, like we would have loved to have been like Jim Morrison, but like we were really like the least cool guys on earth. So I don't, you were like, Robbie. I don't know exactly what this leap we thought we were going to make. <laughs> you were like Robbie Krieger, isn't it? Robbie Krieger. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. He's the one who can't handle the acid in the desert, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that, that yeah, might be fair. No, um, it's, it's like that great scene. Like, this is the scene that, like, my friends and I would always uh, just die laughing over. Is they're all in the desert, and everyone's all wasted. And, and uh, Robbie, <laughs> Robbie's, like, crying, going, like, I can't be what my parents want me to be. And Jim Morrison's like, why don't you kill your parents? <laughs> 
I've always like, if he really did that, that's maybe one of the meanest and funniest things you could possibly do to somebody. <laughs> you can put stuff like that in people's heads when they're tripping. I mean, that's not, yeah, that's not Jim, polite behavior. But Jim Morrison, I mean, if you're tripping with, if you're doing peyote with Jim Morrison, it's like you know, you're 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 fighting in the heavyweight class. You just have to be ready for anything. <laughs> Absolutely. I think, and, and the conceit in the movie, right, is it's like the first time they've ever done it. Right. Like you're having a super heavy, yeah, super heavy desert trip the first time out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, uh, and then like the lion and the Indian, it's just, it's all so funny to me. And like, and, <laughs> and, uh, and just sort of, I mean, because the thing is, too, is that not that the, not that that, uh, not that the people in the 60s were the first people to ever have those kinds of experiences, but there was, in American culture at least, a certain freshness to it. Um, mm -hmm. And like a new frontier kind of, uh, you know, sheen that it had. And so, you know, we can't have that. Like our gender, you know what I'm saying? To do it almost feels like parody. Um, you know, there's a part of it that feels like you're almost like aping the 60s or something. But back then it was like brand new. You felt like you were on Mars or something. You know, I think I'd feel, I'd really feel that way if like I was to do it like now. Um, but I, I, I mean, I think that we still had probably pretty, I mean, at least I think I did. Uh, you know, I grew up kind of sheltered. I um, it probably sounds like, um, and so I went away to college and like, you know, that first big burst of sort of ideas and experience that you have sort of outside your norm. Oh, sure. Um, where did you go? I went to, uh, I started at, at Saginaw Valley State in, Sag in Saginaw, um, which is a very small sort of regional university. Um, I dropped out, went back to community college uh, a couple of years later and eventually finished at uh, Oakland University in Detroit, in Detroit. Okay. So I sort of bounced around for undergrad. Uh, I think I finished my undergrad degree when I was like 26. So I took a little while to get there. So. Sure, sure. Well, no, and, and you know, when you talk about that first burst, like that's a part of my life that I, I think I will always idealize. Like there's just something, mm -hmm. there's just, and it was a, it was such a brief amount of time when I look back on it, but there was an innocence to it and there was a, uh, a freedom <laughs> that's hard to replicate, you know, at any other point in your life. Like you, when you're 19 or you're 18 and you're just out of high school and you're off on your own and everything seems new or I don't know what it was. And you, and you can bounce, back, oh. you can bounce back so quickly and you know, nothing matters all that much. And you know, there's not that many consequences. It seems like it's, it's a good time. Yeah. I think in, in you know, in a middle-class family like mine, I think there's like a, you know, I felt like I always felt like I was being independent, right? Like I was off my own, but like the safety net was so present, right? Like I, there was just a limit to how badly I could screw up. Right. Um, yes. And like, I, I would have been okay, you know? Well, especially with that big family. I mean, you had like cousins and brothers right. and sister. I mean, you had people everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I think that I would have, I would have really, really, I mean, I did screw up a lot, but I would have had to really go to my way to do like lasting sort of harm in some ways. Um, you know, other than to like, my mother's mental health, probably. I don't think I did anything that was particularly, you know, stuck in the permanent record. Um, but I, but I think that was very safe. There's a, a Eula Biss essay in her book, No from No Man's Land, where she talks about like the, um, like college student, like, uh, freedom, like the, the communities and college towns and, and sort of like just insulate like students from like getting in trouble for being like, you know, college students. Um, and I, you know, I think that's a, an interesting observation, the way she sort of frames it, you know, that she was teaching at Iowa at the time and talking about the college students sort of being obviously out in the streets, just sort of like a mess, but it's just something the community just allows to sort of happen. And it's like, these are people who are going to grow up to be successful, right? They're going to big school. Um, so you give them these couple of years of like chaos, you know? You have to have, I mean, especially if you grow up in a, I mean, sheltered or, uh, I don't know. I think young people... 
uh, or at least most young people are going to get it one way or the other. Like I just have mm-hmm. the friends of mine that, that were most well behaved in college tended to have had their biggest freakouts in high school. Um, yeah. you know what I'm saying? It was always like, Oh, I did all that stuff when I was a freshman in high school. I was like, well, I, I didn't, I'm doing it now. You know, <laughs> like, Right. I'm going to get my, oh, and I think you see, and the people who were, um, who would like stay on the plan their whole, you know, they're like, do one high school, get out of college four years, get the job, the house, the wife, the kid, you know, and then they have this like, they actually have that midlife, like 30 year freak out or something like you hit the end of the plan. You've got everything that was on it. And it's like, ah, I didn't do anything else, you know? So I think there's probably, you know, there's more than one way to do it. And I think it, sooner or later you have to have that phase. I think. Well, yeah, no. And I've always joked. I was like, I've just been trying, I've been trying to get my midlife crisis out of the way for the past like 15 years. Like I've been, <laughs> I'm not a procrastinator. Let's get this thing done. You know? Right. Uh, it's been like honestly in some ways you look back and it's like i think you know 25 i felt like i was having one you know like you have these moments uh or these phases, but it doesn't i don't i don't think temperamentally or psychologically i you know and maybe i'm wrong maybe i'll hit 40 and and flip but like uh i sort of feel like that's not the way that i'm i'm wired uh thankfully right you know? it's like sort of yeah no it's great it's yeah. kind of a low level constant crisis <laughs> rather than one I mean, in some ways probably like the creative life like facilitates that like not putting it off or like dealing with it. You're, you're dealing with your shit sort of like on a day-to-day basis presumably like in the work or in the reading or that you know experiencing art or whatever you're doing like that's giving you all these avenues for like emotion and for exploration um that that maybe is you know at least letting you blow off little bits of it here and there as opposed to like saving it all up and then like having this big thing well, no, I th- I totally agree. Like, I think like, you know, obviously there are writers who still uh, are depressed. I mean, of course, there's right. no, there's no end of the uh, of literary history to prove that. But like, no, it seems yeah, like, it seems like that, um, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, it's a really healthy ventilation, and a, you know, to get words on the page and to be sitting there confronting this stuff. Um, you know, if you do it in good faith and you're trying to be honest about it on the page, like I think it has a, mm-hmm. huge, I think it has a hugely um, uh, what's the word medicinal effect or whatever, you know, it's beneficial. And I feel like I want to say, I read something recently where people who, uh, write about grief, whether they're doing it in a literary vein or they're doing it just as a therapeutic exercise, uh, tend to experience less, uh, lasting or debilitating depression, which makes total sense to me, you know? I, I think it does to me too. Uh, you know, I was just actually talking about this with a friend recently where, you know, like, uh, and I don't know how you feel. It always makes me feel a little bad, but sometimes my emotional reaction to to a, a, a novel or a, a movie or a piece of music or something will be feel more heightened than like my reaction in real life. Like to go to a funeral sometimes is less emotional in the moment than like reading about a funeral or something, right? Yeah. Um, and I think there's it's. I mean, both. It's because the the novel is a perfectly calibrated emotional device, right? And the funeral is a messy real life thing. Um, but I think that there's something like, I mean, the amount of like death scenes that you've, you've dealt with as a reader about fictional characters you really cared about by the time you're, you know, 30 or 40 or 50, like you've read hundreds and hundreds of them. And it's a rehearsal in some ways for like these real life things. Like, you know how to handle it because you've been practicing emotionally by reading or watching movies or whatever. Right. Um, I think, does that make sense? No, that makes total sense. That makes total, you know, total sense. And I think that a lot of people would prefer to sort of turn off that, uh, spigot and not deal with that kind of, you know, that kind of interior experience because it's uncomfortable. And I think 
that for me, and I imagine for you know you uh, and for a lot of writers, it's just a situation where it's more uncomfortable for me to not confront. <laughs> uh, right, right. You know, I'm made more uncomfortable by the fact that like I'm you know uh, I'm not able to access it, or I'm you know I, I'm a person who wants to go towards the flame, uh, at least to some extent. Yeah, to keep turning back into it instead of um, turning away, uh, which I, yeah, I mean it's just so it's such a powerful experience that I think that um, I'm always I'm always curious when people you know can't do that or can't read anything that has anything sort of dark or upsetting in it or um, and and usually those people's threshold for what that means is way lower than mine, right? Hmm. Like what I was like, like oh that was too that was too upsetting. Yeah. Um, like uh, there's some other books you should really avoid. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like the only the only thing I can think of that uh, that has always plagued me, and I think it's rooted in my childhood, and I'm sure I could handle it to this day, but it's almost become this kind of superstition for me, is that I cannot and will not watch the movie Sophie's Choice, uh, which I saw when I was a kid, and I I was so powerfully affected by it. I don't know what I was doing watching this, but like right. the, the scene at the end, you know, where Meryl Streep is having to choose between her children, and like. Sure. That just like absolutely split my head wide open when I was a kid, and I've never seen it since ever. And like I, and for some reason, wow. for some reason, it always like follows me around on the cable guide. You know, like every time I turn, right, it's right, me, it's like Sophie's Choice, and I'm just like, oh, you know, it's such a brutal story. It's like the ultimate worst decision. And you know, I've had people, I've talked to friends of mine, uh, and this sort of like circles back to where we began. But uh, I've had friends of mine say that like you know. Uh, you know, their tolerance for uh, cinema violence or for reading dark things or for confronting difficult situations uh, has been diminished after having a child, uh, mm -hmm. which I think yeah, that, that, that strikes me as uh, uh, fair or not, maybe not fair isn't, isn't the right word, but you know what I'm saying? It strikes me as like a proportional response in some regards. And I haven't had like a really strong experience of that. Cause like I have friends who, who like really and, and truly will not watch any violent movies. Uh, for some reason it makes them think automatically of their children. And it's just like, it's right. just too emotionally upsetting, but uh, I must be numb or something. Like I, I can still watch. <laughs> I can still watch. I it. mean, I think that and I can see that getting worse. You're feeling you're older and they're just sort of like out of your sight and they're, you know, that that's not a thing that's going to, going to diminish in some way. I think that once you're on that path, it's just going to, you know, I think that some reasons, like, I think that parenting stories are, you know, why something like Sophie's Choice or why the, the kind of stuff I'm working with um, potentially have a lot of power is, like, there's almost nothing that, that seems more fraud or more sort of full of fear and anxiety than, like, parenting. I mean, there's just the amount of variables that are out of your control are immense. And, and it can maybe go up as your children age instead of down. Yeah, no. Um, I, what right? I, I, yeah, what I always joke about, like, whenever a buddy of mine will be like, you know, my wife and I are pregnant, and it's like their first kid. Uh, the, the thing I always say is, "Welcome to a state of permanent fear." You know? like, right, right. Like, and that's and I say congratulations, and then I say that, and I'm half joking, you know. But that's the truth of it. And <laughs> that was an aspect of it that, like, no one really told me was that, like, even throughout the pregnancy, like it, it, as early as that, you're you're going in for all these tests, and there's the amniocentesis, and there's the sonograms, and you're looking for the heartbeat, and I mean, it's a stressful process, and it's uh, it's scary. When so much of that, so much of the testing when you're like pregnant, it's like it's all this like negative testing, right? It's like let's verify this thing isn't wrong. Let's verify that you know, right? It's it's a weird thing, you know. It's like like your yearly checkup for an adult is never like a let's see how good you're doing, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like let's make sure like the kid doesn't have like two heads and blah, blah you know, you're just right, like, oh, right, God, you know, so oh. you're waiting for results and all that kind of stuff, but. 
Um, obviously the, you know, the positives outweigh the negatives or people wouldn't keep doing this. Sure. No, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's just, it's just fascinating. And you know, it, it, it brings to mind, like when it comes to like the ingesting of media, whether it's literature or whether it's movies or whether it's music or television, whatever it happens to be, you know, it's something that most of us do, um, I think largely unconsciously, like you don't sit there and Mm -hmm. you don't sit there and evaluate, like, what am I ingesting the way that you might when it comes to, uh, food, uh, for example. Right, right. No, absolutely. You know? And so, you know, I, I say that I have a high tolerance and I do like, it's hard to shock me. And I tend to have a fairly measured emotional response to movies. Like they don't, they don't stick to me. It's a movie. You know, I I kind of see it, Mm -hmm. I see it deconstructively and at the level of story. And I see it as a writer, you know, most of the time. Um, and every once in a while, like a movie will really get to me emotionally, but it doesn't happen maybe as often as I, it should, or I wish it would, but, um, you know, it brings up an interesting question. And I think there's some validity to the idea that you need to be aware of what you're ingesting and that maybe I'm not as careful as I could be, um, about taking in like really violent imagery or like reading, like really like gnarly um, violent passages or tales of abuse. And, you know, on the one side of the ledger, I can say, Oh God, you know, there's some truth to that. Like, maybe I should be more conscious of this. Like maybe this is operating, uh, on my brain and on my soul at a deep level that I need to be aware of. Uh, and then there's the other side of me that says, well, as long as you're conscious when you're ingesting it, then it's okay. Does that make sense? Or then, then you at least have some measure of self-protection and it's not like you're just, uh, kind of eating it blindly. I don't know. I... Yeah, I mean, I think like, I think I, I guess I, I think that the the danger with that kind of stuff is when it's when it's um when it's cheap in some way, right? Like, um, I don't think that you know you're reading the you know the violence in like fairy tales or something. You're you're not reading those and being like numb to violence. I don't think, but like you're watching. Um, you know, an action movie where, you know, Sylvester Stallone or whoever's in those now, like murders like a thousand people in a movie and then just like <laughs> has a cigarette, you know, right. like that's bad for you. Like that's, that's bad. For, I mean, you know, whatever. I like that stuff too, but like clearly like if you wouldn't want to watch 10 hours of that a day. You're not going to be a human being afterwards, you know? But I think in, in most literature, in most good films, the violence is being, is happening at a different level or is, um, or hopefully the effects of it are being being worked away, or it's doing something to you that's productive. Um, I mean, again, you can't go back to you know the Bible or the Greek myths or the Nordic myths or fairy tales. And I mean, it's just a parade of violence, right? Um, yeah, it's like and, the, old, and, the, old, and, the Old Testament. I mean, come on. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, it's just it's 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 devastating what happens to people now. I mean that um, you know the the people who you know go to church every Sunday but won't watch an R-rated movie just have it backwards, right? Um, <laughs> right. they're, already, they're already participating in the giant trauma, you know, yeah. but, uh, um, I don't know. I think that, I think part of what, what, part of what does make those things stick with us or makes them powerful is that we remember the things that scare us or remember the things that, that, um, discomfort us and can't forget. Uh, I mean, I think that a lot about like stuff I took in when I was a kid, like the stuff I remember is the stuff that freaked me out, you know? Yeah. Um, that there's things that, I mean, you remember those, uh, like maybe like three books in a series or like scary stories to tell in the dark. And then they were like more scary stories or something, you know, but they had these, um, really grotesque, like ink drawings. I'm trying to think they were, 
Yeah, they were around when I was a kid. They, you get them to like the, the Scholastic Book Club or something in school, right? Okay. Um, and they were just these creepy little stories and these terrifying illustrations. Um, and a couple of years ago, I was thinking about them. I'm like, well, I should find a set of those and I'll buy another set and take a look at them. And I mean, like, I got them like in the mail and like opened them up, and it was like just this. I mean, one picture, just this rush of feeling. You know, it's like I've been scared about that for 20 years. And it still can do that to me, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's like that's. Yeah. Kind of, I, I had a similar. I had a similar experience with Creep Show. Like I remember, like the right. There was a Creep Show. There was like the. It was like a comic book, right? Or it was like a graphic novel or a yeah. collection of stories, and then they made a movie out of it. But like the guy getting buried, you know, up to his neck in the sand, and the the tide comes in. Like I remember that one, and um, just like you know, there's certain vivid imagery from your youth that sort of gets ingrained in your head. I used to watch. Um... You know, we, we yeah, I wasn't really allowed to watch. Like, I wasn't allowed to watch R-rated movies. Um, I wasn't allowed to watch PG-13 movies until I was 13, like, exactly. Right. Like, my mom was just like, well, they wouldn't put that rating on it if it was for 12-year-olds, you know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I had In a very earnest, very sincere way. Yeah. Um, so I would stay up all night and watch, like, Tales from the Crypt and The Outer Limits and stuff, like, in the middle of the night. And I just ate that stuff up. But it, it not only creeped me out because of what it was, but also because I wasn't supposed to be doing it. Right. You know? Sure. So there was this dual, like, like, enjoyment and fear and sort of guilt. Like, I would have hated to have been caught watching, like, you know, Tales from the Crypt, which is always sort of, like, gross, sexy, you know, and I'm 12 or something, you know? Right. Um, but I think that made it really attach because it was, like, all these things. It's, like, it's scary and it's sexy in a way I'm not ready for and I know I'm not supposed to be watching it. And, like, I mean, it just attached really, really deeply um, and lots of stuff like that. Certainly books, right? Reading Stephen King, reading like the fifth grade. Right. And it's all just murder and blowjobs. Like, right. I wasn't ready for that. Right. <laughs> right. And I knew, like, I'm reading in the car with my mom. No, and she I, knew what I was reading. She would have freaked out, right? Right. No, I remember I remember distinctly, because like, I have a pretty bad memory, but I remember like two things that come to mind is that, one, I remember planning a slumber party with friends of mine, and the entire thing was centered on watching the, the Steve Martin movie, The Man with Two Brains, because we knew there was a... <laughs> We knew there was a nude scene in it, you know, like we saw like the, the little N next to the movie and the cable guys who were like, we're going to watch a movie with a nude scene. And then, um, and then what was the other thing? Oh, and then I remember distinctly speaking of Stephen King, uh, reading the shining. And of course, when you're reading this stuff, you tend to be reading it like up in your bedroom or whatever in private so that, because you're getting away with it. But I remember the book scared the shit out of me, uh, so badly that like I had to like read the end of it. Like in the living room with my family, like as they're watching TV, <laughs> you know. Like, uh, oh. But you know, I think that that's a common thing. It's funny, like how that those books. I know so many people who read those books at that age, you know. Yeah, and, and you know now, of course, you're just never denied anything. Like no one ever, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you're allowed to just ingest whatever you want, and I think that lowers the power in some ways. I mean, always that forbidden thing is like something of value. Um, and just all those emotions sort of combining was really, really important in a way that's very hard to replicate. It's hard to read a book that's going to do that to you now, you know? Yeah, no, it's like those days are kind of gone. I think it's a function of, <laughs> I think it's a function of youth and like the experience can still be rich, but it's just different. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk a bit uh, about uh, how you work, you know, like you're, pretty, okay. you're pretty industrious and you do a lot of different things. Like you're, you're editing for uh, Dezank and you're doing the collagist and, um, you know, and then you're writing your own stuff. Like you must be pretty good at time management and you must be pretty disciplined. Um, man, I, you know, I mean, I don't always feel like it cause like I certainly get my, you know, Xbox time in and, and, you know, my bar time in and that, but, 
Um, but yeah, I, I guess I, I would say I, I am in sort of broad strokes. You know, I, I write in the mornings every day. I, if I'm not teaching, you know, I, I work from home for Desank and, um, and I'll write when I get up until like noon every day, um, six what? or seven days a week. Um, well, that's pretty industrious. Okay, <laughs> I was going to say it's that's... pretty industrious. No, it's super industrious. <laughs> right. But it's it's in some ways it benefits from like like because Jess is still in in grad school. Um, she leaves at like six thirty in the morning, comes home at like seven at night every day, which gives me this like twelve hour block of sort of being by myself to to work in. Um, so I think like that that helps a lot. Uh, but I, I feel really lucky sort of to have this time and to have the ability to do it. Um, and I tend to try to make pretty good use of it. Um, yeah, I mean, I still, still, of course, screw around in that. But I've, I started writing, you know, like that everyday kind of schedule maybe like five years ago. Um, and it's sort of grown over time into, you know, my stamina being higher. You know, when I first started, it was like five days a week, like two hours a day. Um, but, of course, I'd never done that before. So it was hugely productive, like immediately, instead of just like writing when I was inspired or something. Um, and now, now the problem is almost stepping off the treadmill. It's really hard for me. Because like I've got so much out of doing it every day, it's really hard for me not to do it every day. Yeah. Because like fear that like if I take like a week off, like I'm gonna like start from zero again. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, like you know, sneaking out of bed on like Christmas to write at like six in the morning before anybody gets up, and my wife just being like, "Get in bed. What are you doing?" Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> yeah, all, all these things you say, they seem so familiar to me. You know, <laughs> it's uh. You know, but I think it's it's just the way that you're wired if you're doing this. I mean, you have to, you know, it's so self-directed that, like, if you didn't have that that compulsion, um, you know, there's no way. There's no way to do it. You have to have that. Otherwise, yeah. who's going to put themselves through it? Because, and I had this conversation recently, and it was, like, partially tongue-in-cheek, but, like, there's a certain misery to the process. I mean, there's also joy to it, but, like... Mm-hmm. It's, it's so difficult. I mean, like, like, let's be honest. And like that, <laughs> that part of it, you know, like sometimes I'm like, what am I putting myself through? Like, what am I doing? You know, like, cause like there's right. these ups and these downs and yet I keep going back to the well, like I can't stop doing it. And like, no matter what comes at me in life, I'll just like, I'll wind the alarm clock back an hour. It's a banana. Mm-hmm. You know, I get up at four, right, like right. 445 these days because of the kid and everything oh, else. Great. So yeah, yeah. And it's a great time of day. And it, honestly, <laughs> I, I, it is a great time of day to work. Oh, it's the best. And it's just, it's the same thing. It performs the same function as working really late at night because there's just, right. you know, the emails are slow, if if not like totally frozen, at least for the first like two or three hours. And then mm-hmm. uh, the phone is silent and the house is silent and I can like hear myself think. And then once you cross 9 a.m. Uh, in my world, like, you know, the doors are blown off and it's like everything changes. So, right. <laughs> you know, but, uh, like, do you find yourself, have you ever had to overcome like self doubt? Do you ever find yourself struggling so badly that you think you're going to throw in the towel? Like you seem like you pretty happy warrior, you know? Yeah. I think that in, I think it was harder when I, when I was younger, um, cause it was harder to see, it was harder to know that it was going to turn out, you know, I think that, um, I mean, this could obviously change at any minute, but like right now, I feel like I'm capable of going through like long periods of like uncertainty, right? Like, uh, we're in the final stages of finishing up a, um, a novel I've been working on for a couple of years. And like the first year of that, like I'm not a planner, I didn't outline, I never knew what I was doing more than like the next like paragraph. Um, and to just be like uncertain for like 10 months was something I could not have done five years ago, you know? Right. I just, I couldn't have stood it. Like there's no way. Um, but I think that at this point, like I sort of trust in my process and, 
and I know that if I just keep working and I'm in the desk every day, like things will turn out. Like, I mean, not every, not everything you write works, obviously. Sometimes it's like spend three months on a story and it's just a bad story. Um, but most of the time things turn out pretty well. Uh, and I know that when I'm done, there'll be, you know, some kind of audience for it. Um, I think that those first, like sort of bigger, first few bigger successes, um, helps me a lot in feeling that way. Like, uh, 2008 or so in the fall, I, I just placed a bunch of stories in like conjunctions of Eden's Ferry and Gulf Coast and all in a row. Like I just like everything I was writing was going to these sort of bigger lit mags. Um, and it made me feel really confident, uh, that I could like play at that level. Like, you know, if I wanted to, um, and that may change of course any minute, but it meant that if I could do that, then I always should. And I just like buckled down and like tried to make things that were that good or better, you know? Sure. Um, but also with the sort of belief that I could, like instead of it being, uh, like, you know, when it's 23 or something, I'm just like, I don't really know what I'm doing yet. I'm trying to figure it out. And, um, and I have no way of knowing whether it's good or people are going to want to read it. And, um, and it shouldn't need that outside validation, but I think having it made me feel really free to then go do whatever I wanted. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, like I could just go be myself on the page and it would turn out. Um, as long as I put in the work, as long as I was honest, um, there'd, there'd be something on the other end. So I didn't have this anxiety in the same way. Now the anxiety is like artistic and not like, recognition or something you know right right and then what about like what about originality in fiction and originality in literature period regarding you know regardless of what category you happen to fall under like is that something that you think of consciously or uh i guess a, a kind of a complimentary question to that would be do you feel like you're working out of a strong tradition uh or do you feel like you know obviously you're standing on the shoulders of the writers you admire and the books that you've loved sure but do you feel like a strong desire to make it new or, and to do things that, you know, haven't been done before? Because, you know, just speaking from my own experience, like I think there are a lot of really strong books out there um, that feel to me like they could have been published 50 years ago or right. even deeper into literary history. And like, I, I don't want to put like a, a kind of blanket value judgment on that because it, it, if it works for you as a reader, that's wonderful. And it, obviously there are books like that that work for a lot of readers, but there's a part of me as a reader and as a writer that is uh, bored by that. And is like, you know, how do I, how do we do this in a way that's new and totally interesting, but still like a, a fully immersive and pleasurable reading experience? Like, do you approach it that way or differently or? I think, um, I think maybe I approach it maybe from the, a little bit different way. And I mean, I do think of the end goal is what, what I, what I want to do is like, um, the experience to be surprising and sort of striking because it's surprising and without making like something that's like, maybe like unreadable. Like obviously like right. I'm still a fairly narrative writer. Like I, um, I really start with thought, but I always try to end up with one, you know, like that kind of, thing. I want to tell a story. Um, you know, I'm really interested in what fiction can be, but I, I, I don't want to throw all what, what's good about what it is, you know? Right. Uh, but I do think, like, some things like uh, reading tons and tons and tons of submissions over the last five or six years um, has been incredibly helpful in, in identifying things that, like, everyone can do, even strong things. Like, like there's, like... Like what? Um, you know, sometimes it's just, like, uh, like kinds of openings, like, the very, like, hooky kind of like first sentences, like the whole concept of the stories in the first sentence, and it's really grabbing. You're like, wow, that's really interesting. The story is just like the playing out of that concept. Um, like that's something that like tons and tons of people can do really well. They can write those kind of stories, that kind of first sentence, so that comes from it. Um, but you see it over and over when you're reading submissions. Like, well, I don't want to write that. Right. Um, certain kinds of endings, certain kinds of, you know, um, I, you know, this is a bad example because it's not a thing that's particularly good, but 
uh, I was reading submissions a couple weeks ago and came across just a run of stories where every story ended with someone like looking up at the sky, like having an emotion. <laughs> like uh, he looked up at the stars and was, you know, the, the sad stars of the night sky. He looked up at the stars and was emboldened. And like, I mean, it's just like this move that strong or not works for a lot of people, right? Like in their writerly brains, this is a good move. Um, and, and realizing like tons and tons of people have this instinct. So even if I have it too, do something else. Right. Don't do whatever you want to do. Don't do what's common in some way. Um, so, you know, even though I, 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 you know, want to make it new, I'm, I'm interested in like avoiding what other people can do. I think that I, I lean on a lot of like genre structures. I'm really interested in the way that, um, like a, like a whodunit story has like a really particular sort of structure and that you can play with that in Subverta and you can attach other kinds of stories to it. Um, I think fairy tales and, and mythological structures are really handy. Um, and in Cataclysm Baby, I think that the stories are really trope-based. Like they sort of have these um, liturgical or, or fairy tale sort of structures. Um, so even though I'm trying to do something that's new and surprising, I think there's a lot of other things to sort of lean on or to, or to use, hopefully in new ways, and not just mimic them, but to like, I even want to say build this there. I don't, I don't say like I'm, but to do something new with them or to use them in a way that's, that's maybe different than normal. Well, yeah, you know, I think, and I don't think there's nearly enough people working on the literary side of the line in fiction who, uh, really embrace genre and turn to it for ideas and, um, uh, respect what it does well and try to incorporate that stuff into, uh, you know, their literary work and vice versa. You know what I'm saying? I think there's, mm -hmm. like, there's a lot to be learned, uh, going both ways, you know? And, uh, yeah, I've never, I've, I mean, the, the talk in, among like other creative writing instructors about, you know, banning like genre fiction from like your undergrad workshops or something, you know, which of course is what like 80% of them want to write. Right. Um, and to me, it seems like there's got to be a better way. Like there has to be a way to, in the same way that I don't see why um, a person who wants to write like Raymond Carver stories would be hurt by reading like Nordic mythology, right? Like that's not going to hurt you. It's going to give you new, uh, new story shapes and new ideas. And you're at least going to see something different. I don't think that a person who wants to write the next Hunger Games is going to be hurt by reading Dennis Johnson, you know? Right. Like, it would be great if those books were written better, too. Um, and it would probably be great if literary fiction was more fun. Yeah. Because it's not a lot of the time. Um, and if there's so much crossover that, it, like, why not put those two groups of people together in a fruitful way as opposed to just, like, taking a student whose interest in fiction at that moment is only through this path and then telling them their thing doesn't doesn't matter. That just seems like a mistake. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, and it's you know uh, I hate to cut things off. This has been so great, but we're uh, we're at the hour, and uh, it's been fun getting a chance to actually talk to you after kind of knowing you on my computer screen for all this time. Yeah, I feel like it's been. A, I was I was thinking about that earlier today. It's been this really long, um, a long thing where we've been sort of in like the same virtual rooms together without maybe ever ending up the same part of the party. So it's very nice. So thank you very much for, uh, for having me and talking to me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Best of luck with everything. And I'll be interested, uh, you know, to see how things go with uh, Cataclysm Baby and also to see uh, what happens when you, when you get this novel done. All right. Thank you so much, Brad. I appreciate it. Okay, folks, there you go. That is the show. That is the program. That is the episode. That is Matt Bell. What a good guy. Go get his novella. It's called Cataclysm Baby. It is available now from Mud Luscious Press. You can find Matt on the web at mdbell.com. He's on Twitter at mdbell79. 
And you can also find them on the Facebook. And you can check out The Collagist over at dezankbooks.org. That's D-Z-A-N-C-Books.org. This program has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It's on the Twitter, at otherpeoplepod. I'm on Twitter, at Brad Listy. Uh, everything's on Facebook. And if you want to email me, it's letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Go check out killrockstars.com. And thanks once again to the UCLA Extension Writers Program, today's sponsor. If you're working on a novel or a collection of short stories or a screenplay of some sort and you want some instruction or some structure or some help or some camaraderie, go sign up for a class. You can attend right here in Los Angeles in person or remotely via the internet, however you want to do it. And there's no time like the present to get it done. For more information, call 310-825-9415. That's 310-825-9415. Or you can visit them on the web at uclaextension.edu slash writers. And you can check them out on Facebook and Twitter as well. Uh, yeah. So what else? It's, uh, you know, it's a little troubling that I left my car running on the side of the road for 90 minutes, uh, in a, in a large city. I'm not sure what happened. And uh, it seems like it would be more excusable somehow if it had happened in some remote part of the country in some sort of rural setting, rural, uh, rather than like happening in the middle of, of one of the largest metropolitan areas on the planet. Uh, or maybe the opposite is true. Uh, maybe the urban chaos in which I reside was a determining factor and therefore uh, makes it okay, at least partially. I don't know. Uh, okay, uh, please remember that Nabokov once referred to T.S. Eliot as a fraud and a fake, and that Herman Melville, late in his life, possessed no copies of his own books. Uh, thank you for listening. I really do appreciate it. I will be back again soon with another program, with another conversation, with me talking to someone else for you. Uh, please turn off your vehicle. Please do that. Please lock it. Uh, please turn it off, but only after you have come to a complete stop. And, uh, yeah.